0: Hello, and welcome to The Space Above Us, episode 118, Space Shuttle Endeavor. Last time, we talked about the 11th flight of Space Shuttle Atlantis on STS-45. This unpressurized space lab mission saw the payload bay packed with science instruments for studying the Earth, the Sun, and distant stars. It also fired a few electron beams at the upper atmosphere, creating artificial auroras until an undersized fuse blew out and put an end to all that. Oh well, at least we got to have some fun with the amateur radio. For today's episode, rather than diving right into the next mission, STS-49, we're going to take a quick side road in order to introduce a few new characters to the show, including one who will fly into space 25 times. It's been a few years since NASA last hired a group of astronauts, so it's time for everyone's favorite The Space Above Us segment rattling off a huge list of astronaut names, usually with mispronunciations, so that they'll sound sort of familiar when they show up on their first missions a few years down the road. It's sort of a wordy segment title. Let's meet the astronaut class of 1992, the Hogs. Starting with the pilots in alphabetical order by last name, we have Scott Horowitz, Brent Jett, Kevin Kregel, and Kent Rumminger. And the mission specialists, Daniel Barry, Charles Brady, Katie Coleman, Michael Gernhart, John Grunsfeld, Wendy Lawrence, Jerry Leninger, Richard Linehan, Michael Lopez Alegria, Scott Parazinski, Steven Smith, Joseph Tanner, Andrew Thomas, and Mary Weber. One thing that jumps out right away is just how many more mission specialists there are than pilots. But that makes a lot of sense. Every shuttle flight only has two pilot crew members, but somewhere between three and five mission specialists. Plus, with some payload training taking years, you need to have a pretty big pool of mission specialists to draw from. And in fact, we have a few more mission specialists to add to that list. Later that year, NASA announced a number of international mission specialists who would be joining the class of 1992. We've seen international astronauts flying as payload specialists, but from here on out, we're also going to see a number of them becoming full-on mission specialists. I think this reflects NASA's increasingly international outreach in the build-up to the International Space Station. The five international mission specialists joining us are from Italy, Maruzio Celli, from France, Jean-Francois Clairvoy, from Canada, Mark Garneau, who previously flew as a payload specialist and is now back as a mission specialist, also from Canada, Chris Hadfield, And from Japan, Koichi Wakata. Everyone I just listed will fly in space at least once, with most flying several times. The record for the latest shuttle flight for this class goes to John Grunsfeld, who flew on STS-125, the final servicing mission to the Hubble Space Telescope, in 2009. But the latest space flight goes to Koichi Wakata, who rode a Soyuz to the International Space Station in March of 2014, becoming the first Japanese person to command the ISS. And from what I can tell, Wakata still seems to be an active astronaut, which I believe is a first for this podcast. We're catching up to the present day. You may be wondering, who among that list is the lucky one to fly a staggering 25 space flights? Actually, none of them. That honor falls to the latest addition to the orbiter fleet, OV-105 Endeavor. Endeavor wasn't actually always destined to become an orbiter. It started life as a bunch of spare parts. Back when the shuttle program was really just getting going, NASA wanted to get a fifth space-worthy orbiter. A fifth orbiter would help them fly more frequently with mostly the same fixed costs. For example, they wouldn't necessarily need a bunch of new facilities or have to hire many more engineers and technicians than they already had. But they get a big bump in flight tempo. And perhaps more importantly, it wouldn't leave a big gap in the flight manifest when an orbiter needed to undergo some extended maintenance, whether planned or not. More orbiters would mean more flight opportunities, which would mean lower costs per flight. Unfortunately, the upfront costs of a whole new orbiter were considerable, and NASA's effort to secure funding for a fifth orbiter were unsuccessful. But what they did get funding for were some major spare parts, So, while Rockwell International was already going to the trouble of building Discovery and Atlantis, they built some structural spares that would be on hand in case the existing fleet needed a major repair. Or, you know, maybe now that we have these major structural components lying around, it'll be easier to talk some future Congress into funding a fifth orbiter. Who knows? When Space Shuttle Challenger was lost, these structural spares suddenly looked to be a pretty great idea after all. By using the spare parts, constructing a new orbiter should be quicker and cheaper than starting from scratch, which was especially important since no orbiter had been built now for more than three years. And As we've learned, skills in the spaceflight industry are definitely use it or lose it. Once there was no need for more orbiters, there was no need to maintain all those facilities and the engineers that built the first set. So people moved on to new roles and knowledge was lost that meant that having a head start could make a really big difference on this late addition to the fleet. In July of 1987, Rockwell International, the company that built the other orbiters, was awarded a contract to construct a 5th spaceworthy orbiter. With a smaller workforce and less lead time for subcontractors, it was going to be a pretty lengthy process. But with the experience gained from building Enterprise, Columbia, Challenger, Discovery, and Atlantis, it went smoothly and steadily. This was especially true when it came to applying the thermal protection system. What had been such a nightmare in the build-up to 1981 was now a well-established process. In the end, OV-105 even came in under budget. But OV-105 isn't the most catchy name. So, Congress passed the NASA Orbiter Naming Program, which sought suggestions for orbiter names to be submitted by schoolchildren all over the United States. The rules were pretty simple. Like the older orbiters, the new one would be named after a research or exploration sea vessel. Well, asterisk on that one, we know that Enterprise was probably actually named for the spaceship from Star Trek. Plus, that whole sea vessel theme wasn't actually established until after Columbia, and maybe even Challenger, I didn't go run this one down again. But since the rule worked retroactively, we can just pretend that it was there the whole time. Anyway, OV-105 had to be named after a research or exploration sea vessel. It also had to be easy to say and easy to hear over the radio. The program was a great framework to get students to learn some science and exploration history and resulted in a bunch of great names. Some of my favorites from the list include Phoenix, North Star, and Horizon. But President George H.W. Bush had the final call, selecting Endeavor. Endeavor, that's E-N-D-E-A-V-O-U-R was named after a ship captained by James Cook, a British explorer in the 1800s, hence the U. In 1768, the HMS Endeavour set out with a bunch of sailors, scientists, and artists, and made its way to Tahiti. When there, Cook and his men were able to observe the 1769 Transit of Venus, a rare astronomical event where Venus passes in front of the sun from the point of view of the Earth. You can think of it as an itty-bitty eclipse. For the next few years, Cook sailed Endeavour around the Southern Hemisphere, charting out Australia, New Zealand, the Philippines, and all sorts of other quote-unquote new lands. Three years after setting out, Endeavour returned to England at the end of a successful expedition. Somewhat hilariously, three years after that, it was sold to a private owner who renamed Endeavour to Lord Sandwich. When Space Shuttle Lord Sandwich, I mean Endeavour, rolled off of the production line in April of 1991, it came with a number of improvements compared to the original fleet, but they were all things that had already been added to the existing orbiters or would be added later. While I'm sure that the shuttle engineers would love nothing more than to whip up a whole slew of improvements using the lessons learned over the past decade of spaceflight, it wasn't really a great idea. For one thing, building to the original spec meant that all the existing equipment and manufacturing processes were still good. But it also meant that the astronauts didn't have to train differently on Endeavour, learning a whole new set of procedures. It meant that the software could be written the same, the vehicle would fly the same, and it could be maintained in the same way. So, as tempting as it would be to make just a few tweaks, it was better to be restrained. Several of the improvements, which again would eventually make their way to the other orbiters, we're oriented around improving landing safety. You may have noticed that we seem to be landing at Edwards a whole lot more than you were maybe expecting. The reason is that Edwards is nice and easy to land at. It's just hard, dry lakebed as far as you can see. Landing in Florida requires the shuttle commander to precisely land on a runway or discover the handling characteristics of a space shuttle plowing through a swamp. The Florida runway is huge, but it's not dry lakebed huge. huge. But if you land at Edwards, it takes significant time and money to get the shuttle back to Florida. So there was a concerted effort to build confidence in Florida landings and make it more of the norm. With that in mind, Endeavour had improved brakes and improved nose wheel steering, so it could stop better and, if necessary, stay pointed down the center of the runway. It also included a big photogenic parachute that was deployed after touchdown. In between main gear touchdown and nose gear touchdown, the pilot crew would flip a switch in the cockpit, which popped a cover away from a compartment at the base of Endeavour's tail. Next, a mortar would fire a 6-foot drogue parachute, which then pulled out a nearly 40-foot wide main drag parachute. The parachute made life much easier on the brakes, and reduced the shuttle's rollout by almost half a mile. If you're curious how they tested it, they just rigged the same parachute up to a modified B-52 bomber. It was important to make sure that the parachute inflated properly, as well as making sure that all the forces that would be exerted on the orbiter were well understood. The main reason I bring it up though, is that the pilot of the B-52 was Gordon Fullerton, who we last saw commanding STS-51F, Small World. OV-105 also came with all of the plumbing and wiring required to perform extreme duration shuttle missions, almost a month long. These lengthy missions would need additional hydrogen and oxygen to run the fuel cells, as well as a better way to scrub carbon dioxide out of the crew atmosphere, along with a few other tweaks. It's sort of a minor point, but I wanted to emphasize that Endeavour was built with these wiring and plumbing hookups, but not the actual tanks. The idea was that when and if the time came to add them, it would be a far simpler process. In space, you've got to think ahead. Endeavour was ready to go by the spring of 1992 and would go on to fly 25 missions. The spacecraft will always have a special place in my heart because when it lifted off on its final mission, STS-134, in May of 2011, a future podcaster was watching from just over 12 miles away. It was the first and only time I was ever able to witness a shuttle launch in person. And oh man, did it live up to the hype. Endeavour is joining us due to the loss of Space Shuttle Challenger, but its construction wasn't the only impact of that tragic accident. In order to add a little background to what we'll be talking about in the next episode, I wanted to spend a few minutes briefly discussing the history of the commercial satellite industry and how the Challenger accident changed everything. Before the space shuttle came along, there wasn't really an established way for companies to launch satellites into space. Sure, it happened, but as I understand it, it was always sort of an ad hoc thing. My understanding of commercial spaceflight before the shuttle is a little hazy, but I believe it was as basic as companies would reach out to NASA, they'd figure something out for this particular mission, and eventually they'd fit the satellite to a launch vehicle and send it on its way. With the introduction of the shuttle, there was suddenly a whole standard process for anyone who wanted to get a payload into orbit. Not only that, everyone, be it government or company, was required to use the shuttle whenever possible. The whole point was that this would result in more flights, which would spread out the shuttle program's fixed costs and make each individual mission and payload cheaper. With a regular ride to space secured, companies could start cranking out satellites built with the shuttle in mind. If you think back, the initial slew of commercial satellites deployed by the shuttle were small spacecraft that were originally designed for expendable rockets. But soon you started to see larger ones that took advantage of the shuttle's voluminous payload bay. It was a great situation for these companies. Big payload bay, standard process for getting to space, and cheaper prices. And hey, there's even a crew on hand to help out if something unexpected happened. The situation started to get less great when the shuttle failed to meet the expected flight rate and the backlog began to grow, but still, I think it's safe to say that it was better than before. But then the Challenger accident happened, and US space policy suddenly turned on a dime. Instead of mandating that everything fly on the shuttle, now only special government payloads that needed a crew on hand, the unique capabilities of the shuttle, or were national priorities, were even allowed to fly. No room for commercial satellites. This was a big problem for all the payloads that were already built or were being built with the shuttle in mind. But with the change in shuttle policy also came some changes in legislation that made it easier for rockets to be made available to industry. So new launch vehicles came on the market, some of which catered to these stranded shuttle payloads. All this brings us to March 14th, 1990, when a commercial version of the Titan 34D launch vehicle lifted off from Cape Canaveral carrying Intel 603 a communications satellite. The Titan 34D was a pretty big rocket, so big that it was sort of overkill for a lot of payloads. This meant that it was actually able to support launching two satellites at once, which would each be kicked out of a dispenser mechanism. This particular launch only carried Intel Sat-603, but the mechanisms were still there to support multiple payloads. Which is a shame, because when the second stage shut down its engine and issued the command to deploy the spacecraft, the wiring was wrong, and the command was sent to the wrong dispenser. The empty one. Intelsat was stuck. This was very bad. An empty upper stage is big and relatively lightweight, so it would be strongly affected by atmospheric drag in low-Earth orbit. That atmospheric drag would pull the empty stage and the trapped Intelsat lower and lower until it eventually hit the upper atmosphere and burned up. Since the Intelsat operators hadn't bothered purchasing expensive launch insurance, this was a pretty big bummer. The only decision the satellite operators could really take was to separate from their own upper stage, which was still attached to the spent Titan stage. This was a tough call because that was the thing that would have taken them into geostationary orbit so now all they could do was limp into low-Earth orbit and call for help. So it was that this poor comsat, which was designed to be launched on the shuttle, was forced to launch on a Titan, only to be visited by a shuttle after all. But that's a topic that we'll have to wait until next episode. Before I get to the outro, I figured that this shorter-than-usual episode is a good place to add the extra boilerplate information I like to throw in every now and then. If you'd like to reach out and correct something, ask a question, or just say hello, you can email me at jp@thespaceabove.us. I'm also on Twitter, where I'm at spaceaboveus. For the last year or so, I've been using that account to post some photos and videos from each mission, so it's worth a look. Theoretically, I also have a Facebook page, but a few years ago I deleted my Facebook account and have no way to access that page anymore. So if you've been trying to get my attention there, sorry about that. And if you just can't get enough of me rambling about space stuff, you can also check out the show's Patreon, which you can find at patreon.com slash us I make sure that the goodies you unlock by becoming a patron are not central to the show, which I didn't think would be fair to regular listeners. So if you stick to the main podcast, you're not missing anything critical, but there is some fun stuff on the Patreon. We have a chat room, a monthly voice chat, and my audio commentary for a number of space movies. Most recently, I did Armageddon, and the next one will be First Man. If that sounds like fun to you, go and check it out. If not, no sweat, show's not going anywhere. The episodes have been getting pretty long lately, so when I saw the opportunity to take a little bit of a break with a nice shorter episode dedicated to Endeavor, I took it. But if you're feeling short change, don't worry, because next time, we'll be talking about the first flight of Space Shuttle Endeavor, STS-49. This mission feels like it fell out of some sort of crazy alternate spaceflight timeline. We'll set records, we'll send hundred million dollar satellites tumbling out of control, and we'll find out just how many spacesuits can fit into the airlock. Ad Astra, catch you on the next pass.